Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is Jamesian heavy metaler Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. I'm wondering if that's the first time those two things have been Jamesian heavy brought metaler. together. Yeah. I, I get the feeling that if, he, if he'd been alive, would he have liked heavy metal? Almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. <laughs> Although I liked both heavy metal and Henry James at one point. Crazy. Uh, do make sure if you can bear it that you're subscribing to this podcast and to the tier list more generally. This week, Lorna Scott Fox joins us to discuss the 50th anniversary of the Tlatelolco massacre. Correct. How's that? Yeah. It's a very difficult. There's an awful lot of consonants in that word. It's in Mexico. It happened in 1968, and it probably isn't as well known as it should be. It's a, a travesty still shrouded in obfuscation, but which remains central to the Mexican identity. Our history editor David Horsball has been in conversation with Dermot McCulloch on the subject of Thomas Cromwell, whose definitive biography he, that is Dermot, has written. If you've been reading your Hilary Mantel, you'll want to listen to that. And our features editor and minister of fun, Ros Deneen, has written about podcasts, so we thought we'd talk about it on our podcast, just for the self-indulgent hell of it. Meta is never better, you might say in response, and you may well be right. Earlier this year, reviewing Richard Vinan's book The Long 68, Radical Protest and Its Enemies, our reviewer drew attention to the fact that Vinan, whose book focused on the protests that took place in the USA, France, Germany and Britain, failed to mention Mexico entirely. In France, the review pointed out, the term soissons huitard has become a standard component of the political lexicon, and the events of May 1968 have generated numerous academic studies, regular decennial anniversary celebrations and a rich memoir literature, which now includes even the offspring of leading revolutionary figures. Compare this then to Mexico's 68, which one can hardly make out for all the equivocation, irresolution, manipulation, conspiracy, cover-ups and legal fudges. Mostly, there is rawness, fear and anger. What we do know is that on the evening of October 2nd, 1968, in the Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Mexico City's Tlatelolco area, chaos reigned. Shots were fired, though we're not quite sure by whom. People were killed, though we're not sure how many. 
Numbers ranged from the government's original figure of seven to some estimates of up to 1,000. The CIA was involved, but we're not sure to what degree. In 50 years, no one has been held to account for Tlatelolco, but the memory hasn't gone away. In this week's issue, Lorna Scott Fox asks two main questions, so simple on the surface. What happened that night, and what does it mean for Mexico? The answers are, inevitably, far from straightforward. Lorna, welcome. Hello. First off, thanks for taking this commission on. Did it did it feel a bit like wading waist-deep through, through muck? Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, I expected um, that people would know by now, after 50 years, what had happened. And to my absolute amazement, though I shouldn't have been surprised, knowing how Mexico operates, there is still a lot of argument and contestation and bitterness about who did what, whose fault it was, who started it, um, what was behind it, and all its repercussions are still under dispute. And so to find out versions, as I give here in a way, slightly different versions, just just to give an idea of how how unclear it is versions of what happened you know you can't make up your mind really yeah and well before before we come to to what what happened or what we think happened and the reckoning or lack thereof let's start by by setting the scene for the events of of october 2nd 68 well um the important thing is the student movement really which has been forgotten and i think has been overshadowed by the massacre that more people have heard of even though some not but more people in europe have heard of the actual massacre that ended this uprising than of the student movement and I myself was amazed when I started reading about it and discovered quite how wonderful it was given the sort of Mexico that existed at the time. The, uh, it was an entirely authoritarian vertical hierarchical society you know, not only in the government which was you know, the president was top and everybody else you know, did what he said or tried to manipulate at best uh, or in, in the family in schools, in the factory. It was absolutely authoritarian. And the idea that any juniors of any sort or youth should should rise up as so bravely and and imaginatively as they did, and the battles they fought, you know, the, the, the amount of injuries and arrests and deaths there were, and they didn't stop. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. And I and that had been, I think, unfairly obscured by the the massacre. Was that con- were they connected intellectually and literally to the other movements going on in the rest of the period in the '68 uprisings that went went through Europe? Were, were there connections? Well, to some extent, uh, Mexico wasn't entirely cut off, and, and in, that, in such a libertarian decade, obviously there were winds coming across. But in a sense, the president of that time, Diaz Ordaz. Uh, he was a real throwback at that. He wasn't exactly, you know, a bloodthirsty dictator as, as as in some other places, but he lived in a little bubble of anti-communism and of Christian conservatism, and he had stemmed all change in Mexico. So it was a particularly, you know, lived in the fifties in a way or the forties. There was, you know, there was no rock music, no counterculture, feminism practically didn't exist. Everything was completely held down. And we should say his party, the um, the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, uh, misnamed. I think they they had been in power. Well, the since institutional the 1920s. bit was all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'd been in power since the nineteen twenty nineteen twenty nine. I think. Yes, yes, under some name or other. I mean, they were they were an offshoot of the um, quarrels between the revolutionary generals at the time. I um, mean, in a way, it carried on being quarrels between generals, right up to sixty eight. Yeah, they had a, a very special 
form of governing which wasn't as repressive on the face of it as some others, but was Mexico was still a police state. And though the army, like the revolutionary army, had a very good reputation and was sort of uh, quite cleverly kept outside most repressive events, and so it was more secret police and undercover and that sort of thing, and the army was, was loved and respected. They didn't use it as elsewhere to put down the people. But the entire society was extremely rigid. And for young people to suddenly stand up and say, we're not having this, and to invent the kind of democracy that the, that the Student Strike Council did. Um, and they were looking for what? Were they looking for regime change? Were they looking for, for, for greater powers to challenge authority? I don't think they'd thought that far. No, they were looking to change society and, and hopefully to change the form of you know, the politics in Mexico because they didn't plan to go on strike. This was one provocation, then another, and then the whole thing escalated. Then they ran into the communists, and so they became, you know, the whole thing got more revolutionary. And after, and because of, it's, it's the repression itself that politicizing them more and more. So they formed the strike council in, in outrage, really, at the, at, at the last incursion of the army, I think, not the police, into the prepa, with a bazooka that, that, that smashed down this beautiful old door and, and everyone was so outraged that they said, that's it, we're going to form a council and then we'll see what we do because it was assemblies and debates and they discussed what was important and how to proceed and how to consciousness raise and, 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 and what marches to make on, on what grounds, etc. and how to respond to violence and all this. But it, it was a peaceful move. I mean, this, that yeah. makes it, that, this makes it sound and this is presumably where, you, where, you, where you've got to on this, that that was a peaceful movement of ideas and, and collaboration rather than, than anything more insurgent. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, although um, you know, there was an early graffiti, and of course there were bits where it said, we don't want Olympics, we want revolution. So of course the government, ah, you know, the, the Cubans are behind this. And of course it was very influenced by Cuba. Remember that had only been nine years ago. And in that part of the world, you know, Cuba meant a lot. Um, and so they were inspired by that kind of liberation, but they were absolutely not, not militarily insurgent. And if maybe some individuals sometimes, you know, use firebombs or they did burn a few buses uh, or had the odd firearm, it was an absolutely pacific movement. Yeah, because they were very conscious that we cannot, we cannot fight fire with fire. We want a democratic transition. We want greater equality, greater justice, greater democracy, and. For the on behalf of the whole of society, we want less repression. And and, and in a sense, on um, October the second was at first at least it represented a kind of lull in the confrontation. And then, I mean, at the time, universities were were still some of them were still occupied by 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 the military. Um, Twelve thousand people converged on on the plaza, and then and then what happened? Well, it wasn't exactly a lull, if I can. Just say a bit more. Um, at that conjuncture, uh, was that the Olympics getting nearer and nearer, and the press was there, so it was all turning. It was bound to be some sort of end game. The Olympics was a big problem for the government well, because that was a big the factor. eyes of the world were going to be on Mexico, and it wanted to present we are a sophisticated, developed country that can hold an Olympics without anyone protesting. Too yes, much. and the, and for the uh, United States, it was very important because they wanted to prove that you could have a, a prosperous, Pacific state, peaceful place under under US under under US sponsorship 
Um, they wanted to show off. It was a Cold War event, really. That, so this is not that Olympics. Cuba. This is a no. This was this was the U.S. really wanting to show that that. Uh, that there was another you know, US-sponsored way forward. So both sides were very keen on it. But at the same time, the students thought that the presence of the press would be on their side because we couldn't really go on like this in front of everybody. And the president had decided just a few days ago that they were going to completely stamp on this. And, and there's also a rumour that I haven't... I didn't mention it because it's not quite certain, but that in the last days of September, Alan Dulles and Richard Helms flew into Mexico. CIA guys. Yeah. And we don't know what happened. And, and there is this debate that, that I say in the piece about who was pushing who, really, mm. of the CIA and the, and the government, you know, who was manipulating who. But what would be in it? For, what's but, the conspiracy theory? What, that, that the CIA would want to ferment unrest for what purpose? The CIA would want to uh, encourage the stamping out of the movement. Not, no, not, not, not ferment unrest. To, 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 yes, to stiffen they would the sinews want to, of yes. the stiffen yeah. the Well, because by that point, Mexico had already been opened out towards the US rather than... Yes, ever since anywhere else. The 40s. So they wanted to continue, yeah. continue that, and they wanted this Olympics to go off well and to show off, you know, a peaceful, peaceful Mexico. And they absolutely couldn't have this going on. So the extent to which they advised or helped or or or, or designed the event of two October, we don't know. They certainly didn't leave a trace. But you know, if, if these guys were there just then, so the the. Um, the main, the National Autonomous University had been disoccupied. I mean, it was a scandal, the occupation. There were demonstrations actually all around the world. Uh, had been disoccupied a day before, and this was part of the plan. The government met with some student representatives for the first time because they'd always refused to meet because the students were insisting on negotiating in public. Um, and there was, in fact, not a very public, but they met and they thought this meant that we're going to get somewhere. So it felt like a lull in a sense. They didn't realize that the trap was that when they invaded the UNAM, it was in order to catch the strike leaders, but they were forewarned, so they weren't there. So lots of other students and teachers were arrested and the whole place raised. In fact, the Olympic Stadium was in the UNAM campus. That was part of the issue. So what were they expecting the government to do? They were, they thought though that this would there would be there would be a prelude to to talks. Proper to, talks. Yes, there was it was a prelude to talks, and so in a conciliatory way, though they were going to march on one of the because there were a lot of occupied high schools, you know, right there. In fact, there were some machine guns were firing then from the top of the Vocacional Siete, which was one of the occupied ones. And, and these are occupied by the government. By the yes, the police, by the, by police and army. I yeah. mean, there are so many sorts of security forces. Basically, police with army backup. And the decision taken at this meeting, they thought, well, look, it's probably going to sort out soon. You know, we we think that they're going to have to give in to our demands because it's getting close to D-Day. So and we've had this meeting, which was inconclusive, but we're going to meet again. And so all the student leaders were there at the speaker's balcony and around the place. So it was a trap, really. They had no intention of another meeting. And what happened? And so what happened then was... That, so, yeah, so they called off the march in a very conciliatory... We're not going to provoke, we're not going to have another fight. Look at all these tanks and soldiers around. So they just they called off the march, OK, we'll all go home in perfect order. And that's when these flares go through the sky. Again, you read different reports. Were they red? Were they green? Was there one? Was there four? And at that point, then, uh, General Toledo starts to move in with his soldiers and the speaker's balcony is then invaded by these men 
in, in, in plain clothes with one white glove. And they start shooting. They get everyone, tell everyone to get down and start shooting down at the soldiers and into the crowd. At this point, the soldiers start shooting back and then there's lots of shooting. Suddenly, snipers appear on all the adjacent buildings and there's a massive shootout and chaos and mayhem um, and nobody quite knows who any of these people are. It has come out what some of the snipers were, but then some people even say some of them could have been students. So who are the white glove guys? The white glove guys were called the Bataillon Olympia, the Olympia Battalion, and they were a group, a sort of, they were, again, you read many descriptions of their, of their constitution. It seems most convincing is that they were uh, um, hand-picked men from, from, uh, from the army, from different regiments, who were supposed to protect the Olympics, but they had already engaged in some, um, some sort of aggressive undercover work during student demonstrations. And they had been posted in the Chihuahua building where the balcony was earlier that day. A lot of preparations happened. They'd been posted there, and they were supposed to then come in and pretend, pretend to be students, start the firing, you know, to force the army to fire back. Uh, also, hospital beds had been vacated in advance. They'd been told, you know, there's going to be some wounded. You've got to have some beds. Lots of flats had been vacated in the in the in the Tlatelolco complex, where they were going to, you know, beat up and interrogate people. Another interesting detail that you mention in your piece is that cameras were posted around the square yeah. in advance. Yeah, there's a guy called Serrando who was charged by Echeverria, the Interior Minister, who most people think was actually was the big hand behind this because Ordaz was too stupid and limited. Um, and he was in charge of the flares and the cameras, apparently that's as far as evidence goes. But And so he'd put this guy to to document and, and, and that's where it's one of the, some of that footage has been, you know, released in 2008, I think, where I saw, you know, saw that little bit where you see the Bataillon Olympia coming and you can see the soldiers don't know who they are. One of the main reasons for all the difficulties in this and in, in grappling with what happened and, and what it means is that so much has been lost. So the footage that we were just talking about, documents, uh, conversations that would have taken place between the president mm. at the time and the interior minister, so much has or been lost. Lost or rather um, destroyed yes. or, or or just not not released. And especially um, the people, the, the, the Comité de 68, I talked to one of the main activist who's also, um, he was a CNH member interviewed by Elena Poniatowska as well. Um, and he's still working away at this. And he says the most important thing is to get the Defence Secretariat to release more files. There's a 70-year rule in Mexico. But they did manage to get some of the police stuff, some of their files, three million files they had on activists and, and people. But the main stuff is there. And I suppose, I don't know if I should say this, but I personally sometimes can't help wondering after having looked at this so closely if the big secret that the defense is keeping isn't that far more soldiers died and an appalling blunder of friendly fire because there was a lot of firing once everybody all the civilians have been all removed and imprisoned and lined up and lying down but the there was a firefight where on and on the the, the soldiers trenched themselves behind bits of the archaeological thing they were, and they were they went fighting on and the, on. Other, the government they were telling. fighting the, they didn't know who they were fighting it was dark so there was just this shootout went on and on, and I'm wondering whether it wasn't a ghastly cock-up that a lot of dead soldiers, and that's what they can't admit. I mean, that is pure speculation on my part. And to talk about the, the Mexican character, 
and how why this is integral is that when the cartels then arose it's the same we see the same situation where if you have power in mexico if you have the ability to dictate you can act with impunity and you talk about impunity in your piece so although this happened 50 years ago mm. the idea of if you've got enough force you can mm. you can act completely without regard yeah. to human life with impunity mm. that's why this becomes critical because it's not only a, a tragedy and a travesty in itself it's, it's indicative of a broader issue absolutely it's an issue that, that continues and i'm very glad of this of this title impunity obviously predates uh Tatilolco, but that was one of the you know the most gross examples that nobody ever was brought to book and they're trying to still trying to prosecute the last one alive echeverria but he's very old he's under house arrest and but it seemed terribly important that they should somehow finish that case off and somebody should be brought to book. Everybody else is sort of dead and, and, and still saying how they saved Mexico from, from these communists. Um, but impunity, yes, continues. In, it's partly because the police and the judicial system are so utterly corrupt. And that's why it's interesting that the, uh, that the president-elect, López Obrador, talking about how he's going to you know, fix these problems, the problem particularly of violence in the, in, in the countryside, cartel violence. He's talking about renewing the police force, withdrawing the army, demilitarizing the thing, which is absolutely necessary, and um, helping to, 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 to push people away from drug and better job opportunities and um, legalize marijuana and all sorts of things that are very useful. But he doesn't mention, I don't think he seems to say anything about reforming the judicial system. And that's why Apart from just the deliberate, you know, cover-ups, obfuscations, lies, and letting each other off the hook that the, the power does, you can't have anything but impunity when there is there are not enough judges and, and and nobody trusts them. None of them are honest. Um, you can't, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. So something very very serious has got to be done with the, not just the police but the the justice system because only six percent of crimes go reported in Mexico. And did, did the people you spoke to for, for this article, did they feel, just on a final note, optimistic about AMLO coming in? Did they feel that this was the beginning of some kind of reckoning? Not particularly. They must be uh, so sceptical and cynical. They're very sceptical. I mean, the thing is that yeah, AMLO, he's, he's a bit of a performer. You know, lots of people didn't appreciate the circus he did after he, you know, he was cheated out of the presidency in 2006, but then he had a huge camp moment. And there's a lot of show. They all think he's a bit protagonistic. He's now given up the presidential car and he's going to sell the plane and all this is great. But his slogans like, you know, hugs, not bullets, well, they just go so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to see that nobody... We, it's very much wait and see because, you know, he's he's better than what was on offer, and he had a great mandate. I mean, he won. It was fifty three to twenty two percent, and that's that's why they didn't try the fraud this time because it would be too big. You know, so so there's a huge sense of relief and, and optimism, especially among the popular classes um, who love him, and that something's bound to change. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's probably not going to get murdered. And, well, he easily could if he goes around in his little car. But... Um, we shall see. Yeah. I mean, he, is, he does get on well with the private sector when he's mayor of Mexico City. So there's, you know, so he's not, he's not a way out revolutionary. But whether he's really honest and brave, we shall see. Yeah. Well, Lorna Scott Fox, we shall have to leave it there, perhaps with the words of Sergio Aguayo, who you quote, everything is possible, but nothing is certain. That's right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dermot McCulloch is a very fine historian, especially of the history of religion. I went through a heavy Nando's period in my 20s and used to sit waiting for my food, reading his book, Reformation, Europe's House Divided. <laughs> it's truth here. It's a very While good book. listening to metal, no doubt. No, no I, I didn't listen to that. I sat there with, it's very good. If you're interested in the Reformation, particularly in Europe, <laughs> uh, I, it's called Europe's House Divided. Anyway. Completely irrelevantly, I thoroughly recommend that book. Uh, McCulloch has now published a new biography of Thomas Cromwell, the minister of Henry VIII, who may now even be the most famous Cromwell in British history, thanks to Hilary Mantel. Wolf Hall and Bringing Out the Bodies have told the beginning and the middle of the story of this Putney boy who rose from relative poverty to become the dominant figure in Henry's court. He was a major player in the Reformation and the annulment of Henry's first marriage. He was an ally, then an enemy of Anne Berlin. We asked our history editor David Horsepool, himself no mean biographer, to sit down with Dermot and get the full story of Cromwell. You can hear their whole chat as a separate podcast, but here's a little bit for you to enjoy now. They're talking about those humble origins of Cromwell. Yeah, born in Putney, which uh, was not what it is now. It was a rather obscure village on the rivers, ferry point over the river. Uh, It built a sort of motorway service station, really, (laughs) because the River Thames at that stage was the great thoroughfare. Great thoroughfare from London, the capital, through to the complex of royal palaces upstream. So the good folk of Putney were always seeing the great pass them, cardinals and the king himself and so on. So young Thomas would have grown up with that, but his his father was... um, you won't call him obscure. He was a yeoman, which means much less than a gentleman, and he dabbled in things. He he had a brewery. Uh, He uh, uh, later on bought a mill 
well, perhaps a water mill in Wandsworth. So actually, they moved to Wandsworth. So it's that sort of area. And young Thomas, therefore, uh, not part of the governing elite in the least. So how did it, how did he make it? I mean, we I I know that he he left England. Is that the first step on on the ladder, really? That his his sort of his own grand tour, as it were. Yeah, that made Italian him, connection. That made him different. I mean, it's sort of uh, extended gap year, except he never went to university. Uh, this is clearly, I, I think, the the action of uh, a teenager who was really, really bored with Putney, and who can blame him? So he he travelled way, way down to Italy, and the story is uh, uh, in, contained in a, a, a sort of miniature novel, a novella by a mid-16th-century bishop and writer called uh, Bandello. And it's about Thomas Cromwell. And, and it's a story of young Thomas turning up in Florence and being utterly destitute, but being taken pity on by uh, a young, uh, wealthy merchant called Francesco Frescobaldi. And the Frescobaldi were a great family and still are in Florence. And, and the, through from the 13th century, they'd been trading. They, they were wine merchants then, they're wine merchants now. And, and at the time, they had an international business. So it was a, a very good stroke of fortune, if that's what it was, to meet a Frescobaldi who took a liking to this totally uh, alien young man from a, as far as you can think of in Europe at the time. And that was the making of him. So he returned as a, a sophisticated young man, but probably no, not much richer than, than he'd left. Probably not, no, uh, but mysteriously well-educated. No university, but he could speak Italian, he could speak French, a uh, bit of Spanish probably, reading German, and interestingly, Latin. Well, his Latin was, was, was OK, It was absolutely it? fine, and a bit of Greek, I think. Wow. Be- because his, uh, <laughs> though the sycophantic later on put Greek tags in their letters to him, and you wouldn't do that unless you felt, oh, well, he'd, he'd be flattered by him. Yes, uh, well, because, of course, yes, being insulted by it was not what they were. No, no. Not what they were after. And then, of course, the first step within English politics and his rise is to become Cardinal Wolsey's man. How did that come about? Well, very late. I mean, he's nearly 40, so his career is starting when a lot of Tudor people died. Mm. Uh, and, and you think, well, why pick out this particular merchant and minor lawyer from the whole crowd swarming around London? He's the Italian. He's the best Italian in Tudor England, as I put it. Uh, he, he knows Italian, and he knows Italians. And the point of that was that Cardinal Thomas Wolsey at the time was building a tomb for himself. You did this if you felt you wanted immortality. You, you, you built the most splendid tomb you could. And, and this tomb would uh, be associated with two great colleges, one in the University of Oxford and another sort of school like Eton uh, in Ipswich, where, is where, he's, where Wolsey was born. But the point was that the tomb was the focus of what you might call this legacy project. And the tomb was being made by Italians, sculptors, great names in the world of Florentine sculpture in particular. So I think Cromwell is there to be the liaison man. He's a middleman between the Italian sculptors and Wolsey himself. Yeah. And as Wolsey's fortunes start to dive, uh, because other people tried to do this and made it less effectively, the, the jump, how did Thomas manage to... He seems to have managed to move over into royal service without ever explicitly abandoning uh, Wolsey. In fact, retaining some kind of loyalty to him and and 
being fairly demonstrative in that, despite the fact that Wolsey had fallen out of favour. Yeah, that was a subtle and uh, interesting thing to do. He, he clearly adored the cardinal. And so as the cardinal's power ebbed, he, he didn't desert him. He moved into the king's service. And I think maybe, and I can't swear to this, I think the tomb again is important because the king, with his usual uh, selfishness, pinched the tomb. <laughs> there it was in, in sections in a, we- a warehouse in Westminster with the sculptor still working on it. And he said, right, I- I'll have that. This is going to be the best tomb in Northern Europe. I'll, I'll take all the bits, which aren't very specifically Wolsey bits, and uh, they'll be mine. And so you can see how Cromwell might have been the man to do exactly the same thing in relation to the sculptors for the king. And he went on being associated with the project. And as I said, thought that that tomb didn't end up as Henry's tomb, did it? Or uh, Because I think I've seen a, even an illustration in your book that, that, that parts of it ended up in different places and lost the angels lost their wings yes, yes, as recently as the, the 70s this and so is, on. This is the great historical justice of the situation, that <laughs> King Henry VIII never got a tomb and serve him right for stealing <laughs> someone else's. And the, the bits of the tomb survived up to the English Civil War, uh, in this time in a warehouse in Windsor, and then Parliament sold them off because there's valuable bronze things like that. Along so, with all those yeah, yeah the, the candlesticks now in the Belgium and the, the, these extraordinary, beautiful four angels, which uh, were uh, actually uh, the gateposts in a, in a golf club in the Midlands <laughs> for a while. And now they're, they're, they're safe in Victoria and other museums. So, so that was how, how he managed to make this jump, was again this kind of Italian expertise. But now we've got him in the middle of the king's business. And the king's business at this point, around 1530, we're talking, the king's business was mainly what was known as the king's great matter. Yeah, getting rid of one wife and substituting another, or at least saying first wife had never really existed. Yes, it occurred Catherine to, of Aragon. Yes. <laughs> it occurred to me the the famous, the rhyme, should be annulled, beheaded, absolutely, died, rather than uh, and and again. There not was divorced. N- there was no divorce at the time. Yeah. What you could say is that a marriage had never happened, and that's Henry's campaign to because of all sorts of legal technicalities, they'd never been married, and therefore he was free to marry uh, Anne Boleyn. And uh, maybe this is a a moment to think about some of the uh, personal religious positions and beliefs um I, I think you go along some way with the idea that henry possibly really had convinced himself that there was some truth to the biblical injunction against marrying your your brother's widow which is what he'd done in marrying catherine of aragon similarly with thomas it, it interests me you you emphasize very early on in the book what you what we should call his evangelical connections his sort of early protestant yeah um, beliefs or uh, dabblings and um, the, the matter of kind of squaring that first with uh, serving a cardinal who seemed very much to represent the traditional conservative church and then having to um, well dance this interesting dance of supporting an ostensibly rigorously Catholic king who was busily splitting himself off from uh, from Rome, while also promoting Lutheranism or anyway a form of early process. How, yeah, what it's, are your speculations about all it's that? It's complicated, but then whoever said history was simple. Uh, to start with, yes, he's Wolsey's servant, and I, I said he adored Wolsey. But I think he, he probably, to begin with, saw Wolsey as the agent of reform. 
because uh, as part of his duties in this big legacy project, setting up the colleges, looking after the tomb, the cardinal wanted small monasteries to be dissolved uh, so that their income would supply the income for the, the new colleges. And, and so one very important aspect of Cromwell's job was to dissolve monasteries under Wolsey. And he would see that as part of a, a much wider plan of reform, both in the church and in the kingdom, because Wolsey was in charge of both. And Wolsey was full of reforming plans. Uh, it, the trouble was that Wolsey had the attention span of a gnat right. and also so much to do that the, 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 these reforms dissolved. Uh, and, and whether... Uh, if he'd survived, uh, he would have become a reformer in some sense. Who knows? But you know, you're right. He's a, he's a symbol of the traditional church. Uh, in retrospect, Protestants see him as a symbol of everything that's gone wrong in the old church. And interestingly, so do counter-reformation Catholics. So Wolsey couldn't really win in that. Because he was sort of personally self-indulgent. He had um, illegitimate offspring. He was obviously had this incredibly lavish yeah. lifestyle and so on. And yeah, it, 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 it he's wasn't a, perf- a good look. He's a perfect symbol of everything which had gone wrong. And they can say, oh, yes, well, that's in the past. No, the counter-reformation, we're, we're good Catholics now. And the Protestants could say, well, we told you so. That's exactly the the sort of person who is the symbol of the old corruption. And, and by that stage, Cromwell had moved on. Uh, he'd exposed his hand as, a, as an evangelical in the 1530s, but always dancing a dance with the king whose religious agenda was very different and, and not predictable. Dermot McCulloch and David Horsepool. The book under discussion was Thomas Cromwell, A Life, which is now on my bookshelves. Now, everybody likes podcasts, don't they? I do hope so. This week in the TLS, we have launched a monthly column looking at all things audio. So that will include podcasts, radio and audio books. Our features editor, Rosdenine, kicks things off with some podcasts. I note in passing that she refers to the medium's amateur charm. What? Which seems a nice way of noting that many are a touch on the shambolic side, mentioning no names. I felt subtweeted by that line in the article. But anyway, Ros's point's a broader one. Uh, podcasts do retain an intimacy, a proximity, because they transmit stories directly into our brains. They can follow us everywhere and become part of our life. And they often lay large claims to getting at universal and particular truths. Ros has looked at a number of true crime tales that do that, as well as something more more obviously academic. She joins us in the studio. Hello, Roz. Hello. So we're doing this column because audio is becoming more and more important in all sorts of areas, but podcasts, at one judgment, seems to be in particularly strong health at the minute. But what, what do you think it... Where is the state of it and what does it do well? Some of the best storytelling around at the moment, I think, is happening on podcasts. And also, they're inclusive. They're free nearly all of them are completely free they are full of good really excellent ideas they're full of the some of the best thinkers the best discussions and they're really intimate as i say in the piece they 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 come with you everywhere they bring everyone in and they take something of the seriousness of radio but radio is a kind of if you happen to be listening to it and you catch it or you don't catch yeah. it but it it fits the modern world is that maybe, maybe there's something peculiarly modern about the idea of always being able to switch it on and, and take it wherever you go Exactly, to have it as you want it, as you need it. They're very soothing, I think, often. I fall asleep listening to podcasts. Exactly, yeah. And so do you. So do I, yeah. Even even ones about murder. Even ones about murder or American football. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, do, I do American football. Do you, do you, do you listen to podcasts? In bed, no. No. Okay. <laughs> Don't make us look weird. We just, we just can win the truth tree here. We are, we... I listen to them on the A1. 
or yeah. other, other long exactly. roads. Lots of people listen to them on their commutes. And I think what they're doing, I think they're sort of reclaiming something that we've lost, which is this very ancient primal thing of someone telling you a story. It happens when you're a kid. You imagine like sort of, I don't know, pre-industrial revolution, everyone's sitting around and there being someone elected to step forward and tell you a story. It tells you about yourself, tells you about the changing of the seasons, the passing of time, puts you in your place and context of this and on earth. And that's what podcasts are doing now. They're accompanying everyone everywhere yeah. as they walk around and helping them to calm down and placing them. And this this thing of being uh, being amongst us is, is very much... The, the idea of the everyman. There's something about the presenter or, or the, the the way that podcasts are written and, and told is is it's very as you say, intimate, but they're they're normal people. They they talk on a level, it's very conversational. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not sort of intimidated by or, or off put off by them. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what if you think about what I what I think is probably the best podcast we've had so far which we've written about, Toby Lishtig wrote about in the TLS and has talked about a lot, that's S-Town, which mm. was produced by This American Life and Serial. In that, you get this character, John B. McLemore. He's a very ordinary guy, and he becomes this incredible anti-hero. And you listen to it, and you everyone who listens to it walks away changed. It is novelistic and moving and remarkable. Well, the novelistic bit, I think, is fascinating because... It, uh, that story, S-Town, which is shit-town, is yeah. what the S mm. means, um, he's a sort of strange, uh, isolated clock manufacturer. He, 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 yeah. he fixes clocks. Fixes clocks so he yeah. sounds like a Donna Tartt character. Yeah. And he's so absolutely saturated by metaphor that you think he's novelistic. Yeah. But, of course, he's not novelistic. He's real, or real to a certain point. And is that why, because we'll get to the... You've written about these true crime investigations that you get now. Is this sort of claiming that... All of the great stories aren't novels. They're things that happen in real life, but we just walk past them. We just bypass them completely. And the joy of podcasts is instead of waiting for someone else to turn them into a film or turn them into a book, they're being claimed now urgently by by, by people. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, and you know, if you, for, for, with S Town, for example, you could, on their beautiful website, they have all the transcripts. And at the top, they have a disclaimer saying, don't read these because you lose. You lose everything. You lose everything. It's all in the delivery. It's all in the emotion. These are here for your reference, you know, but please don't read them because, like you say, these stories have to be sort of already caught. Um, and that's that's why, yeah, S-Town's been so successful, I think. So you've picked out three, uh, mm -hmm. which are broadly connected. Let's start with teachers, the teacher's pet, yeah. which we should actually, a disclaimer, this is actually made by a News Corps paper, the, the Australian. Australian. Yeah. And it's had it's been downloaded when we went to press yesterday. It's been downloaded seventeen million times. It's probably been downloaded many more times since yesterday. It's enormous, enormous success, which is weird actually when you start listening to it because it starts really. I mean, I say in the in the piece, it starts in this kind of like quite soap opera fashion. It's quite, I don't know, mundane. No, you know, someone who went a woman who went missing, uh, lots of neighbours gossiping. And then it just slowly, slowly builds up and becomes quite addictive. It sounds very stylish as well, in its way. I mean, weirdly, it's stylish in the way that it's not stylish. So mm. the journalist presenting it, Headley Thomas, he keeps he keeps repeating himself. Mm. He keeps repeating the facts. And each time you hear the facts on the ground, it, things should get more boring or simpler, and they don't. 
each time you return to the facts, you return to it with a tiny bit more detail, everything is a little bit more messed up. And the story he uncovers is incredible. It's still not resolved. There's probably going to be a second series. Because the cops are actually taking some of the information that the podcast has provided and using it to, 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 to mount another investigation. Yeah, it's so, it's so meta because after, cause, cause like Serial, um, the teacher's pet was sort of done live. So every week there's an hour between one week and the next all the people listening to the podcast who who were involved in the case or who knew someone come in with bits of information so it's sort of it's investigative journalism happening sort of live and then also it becomes a huge success as they're making it so then you're getting headley on the podcast being interviewed on the news or another famous podcast about the success of the podcast and what that means for the case yeah. and it's sort of collapses in on itself but it's really it's but the quality of the journalism matters though because totally. if, it, if, if, if this wasn't done properly yeah um it, it wouldn't create that and it, it would go nowhere there has to be a proper probing of a story there's a proper probing of a story there's a really excellent proper investigative reporter at the heart of it and clearly he must have a team of people helping him out as well and there might be a second series i think there is going to be a second series i think they had to just sort of leave it for a minute and, and, and i mean lots of people listening to the podcast have been donating money so that the house where it is suspected this missing mother was was murdered and buried 36 years ago so the house can be bought and excavated and this is big in america the thing that's fascinating about podcasts is it does shrink the world yeah. doesn't it because people like a bit of australian stories because it's a bit exotic because it's about a rugby league you know there's, there's all sorts of tiny micro australian politics going on but it's a universal story about jealousy and bodies buried Absolutely. But, you, but you get a little bit of oh it's across the other side of the world but i can feel close to it i know you're listening to it and then someone suddenly goes fair dinkum yeah <laughs> and just for a minute you're just completely delighted because you haven't heard that word for like a long time yeah. um tell us about west cork and west cork similarly i mean it's a great story it's a much it's a much better known uh, case and this is audible this is on audible and so lots of people know about sophie toscane de plantier and she was killed in 1996 and and her killer's still not been found and the story's been had a lot of media exposure. Everyone in Ireland, everyone in Ireland knows about this murder. Um, interestingly, though, Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie come along. These two reporters, they come along, and they've. It's much more structured. Each episode has a quite a beautiful, almost literary theme to it, and they start really slowly pulling the story about part, teasing it about, and there are lots of weird myths and fables around her death because it is very strange. She was brutally brutally almost mythically killed outside her holiday home in this remote part of West Cork it was a couple of days before Christmas her fat she's a French TV producer her family are back in France why is she at the house on her own just before Christmas she went to a castle that day which is said to be haunted by a woman who portends death and she came running to the local house sort of terrified because she'd seen something there are all these weird Just stories gothic thing. it's like this this town again if, so, if a novelist did it you'd be like mm, maybe yeah. maybe tone that down a little bit yeah exactly yeah um and so so the two journal- journalists ford and bungie just really really expertly start spinning these stories out and again because it's set in west cork you get so much amazing local character you get incredible people amazingly like charming turns of phrase and you get the whole of the town in West Cork 
set against all of Sophie's sort of French relatives who have a very different way of speaking English. And then it just sort of, it, it becomes this really like sort of detailed sort of soundscape that's really enjoyable. There's going to be such a lot of copycat versions of this podcast now, aren't they? Once there's a success of true crime investigations, I mean, I suppose that Serial yeah. and Estan was has produced this, but you can imagine now any journalist with a good story that they've written, you know, an 800-word article about, the temptation to, to turn that into a 10-part podcast series. and it, But it has to be done well, doesn't it? Otherwise, it it won't work. Yeah, it has to be done really well. And you need to begin with some sort of idea of where they're going to get to otherwise it can just tail off there are moments in in the teacher's pet where you think where's this where are you going to end yeah. with um the rat line which you also mentioned by philippe sands we sort of know where we're going to end mm. in that it's it's ground that he's covered he's covered before tell us about that one i i was listening to it yesterday on the oh. a1 what do you think i only listened to the first episode and yep yeah, i I thought it was great. It was very much what I was expecting because there's been there's been the TV program, there's been there's been the book. So, yeah, it's familiar ground, but it's it's still very much alive. I think that it works really well on, uh, as a podcast because the the sort of the building up of sounds mm. that that they, that they do is quite sophisticated. It's not it's 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 a level up from what you usually get on radio. So you know in the first episode he's in his car as mm, you were yeah and he you can hear the gps the indicator and the indicator and he's playing leonard cohen and the radio and the motorway and his companion and then he addresses us mm. and tells us where, you, where we're going mm. and it, it it's it really pulls you into that mm, car really because it's happening in real time yeah almost and that's the same with with all of these investigative things is is the appeal of of going through the process with them and and coming upon things as, as they, they come on, yeah, as exactly. they come upon them, yeah. Is this a podcast? Is there a distinct? It is a podcast because is there a thing? Because is this a radio program that is being pushed out through the medium of podcasts? Is it a, an audio book that's being effectively mm. dramatised to a certain extent through the medium of? Podcasts? Does that even matter? Do you think people even think about it in those terms? That's, you know, radio is often consumed. We'll get to that in a second. As a podcast, does that make a difference? To something designed for a podcast versus just being pushed out through the medium of, of you know Apple or Acast or whatever. I th- I think that, that 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 there is a subtle difference, and it's to do with, you know, if it's a podcast, you can take as you can take make it as long or as short as you want. You can have one episode that's twenty minutes long, and the next episode is forty minutes long, and often they do that. Really inconsistent episode timings. Um, you, we like to do that as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Matt doesn't like us doing it as much as that, but we do like to do it anyway. Go on. The story can, takes as much time yeah. as it needs to take to be told. And because you're like, well, we're going to do 12 episodes, whatever, you can go back and, as you were just describing with that, with that, those layered sounds, you can go back and, and really sort of um, turn up the detail and spend a lot of time making sure that the beats are perfect and creating something really sculptured. Which I think if you're doing radio, you have a half hour slot, it's at this time. Yeah. You, yes, you'll be able to get it later on the BBC website or whatever. Which is kind of what In Our Time, which is the other one you mentioned. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that that really is a radio show which wants to have a global audience because it's so kind of mad that they get experts to talk about all sorts of esoteric things. Yeah. It wouldn't really exist in many other countries in that form. And so the podcast is effectively the way Radio 4 are saying, if you're not British... And you don't you work during the day. Here's this crazy thing we do with Melvin Bragg talking about 
what examples you, you give the Iliad, oh, Hannah Arendt and Four Quartets. Yeah. Uh, that's the channel is the key there, isn't it? It's just a way of chucking that out to more people. But the difference with the podcast, which is so charming, is you listen to the whole programme and then Melvin Bragg does his sign off and then they keep recording. So you get an extra 10 minutes or so where the panellists turn to Melvin Bragg and go, you didn't ask me about blah, 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 blah. And he goes, I, I, my questions are open questions. I, you could have talked about whatever you wanted. And they know they're being recorded. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and they all get quite squabbly and then one of them goes, I can't believe I forgot to mention. Da, 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 da. Um, and it's so embarrassing. We didn't talk about this and this. And it's brilliant. And they keep going every time until the producer knocks on the door and says, who wants tea and who wants coffee? And that's how it ends. And that's how it ends. I must say, I really like the sound of that. The idea of of inserting the human element, the emotion among among the brains. Yeah, and that's what that's what podcasts do. We all, I mean, so so actually, Melvin Bragg has been doing in our time now for twenty years yeah. this year, and we've all probably grown up listening to it. And now, or maybe, and now, and now on the podcast, you're just there. You're just you're was, brought the New into York, the room. I mean, the New Yorker did a did a column about it. I mean, it's 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 hit, it's hit America because they say this doesn't exist any anywhere yeah. else. Uh, and this is the other thing that podcasts you can go and reshape them so they're beautiful and layered. But to go back to your amateur charm dig, yeah, um, it wasn't you, a dig no, actually. Uh, my point <laughs> is, you actually don't want it to be too layered because, or, or some of them you do want to be layered, but sometimes you want someone offering Melvin Bragg a cup of coffee, yeah, which isn't very modelled and, and, and thought out because you want that sense of a bit breaking down around the edges because like you say a radio show you know I present Front Row on Radio 4 is 28 minutes and 32 seconds you can't go 38 seconds you can't go 26 seconds you do 32 seconds and then you have stop yeah. and that's very polished and what we're trying to say with podcasts is it's an opportunity <coughs> to slightly unbuckle and relax maybe yeah sure and maybe that's why there, there are sort of there's two different ways podcasts have go these amazing stories that are novelistic and structured and then the discussions like in our time where clever people sit around and just talk about how things work yeah note of caution buzzfeed announced last week they were getting out of podcasts entirely why really yeah their pivot they've been pivoting to video is the horrible phrase that exists (laughs) in the media landscape they've been pivoting to video for about a year and they have a big they had a big podcast arrangement and they're slowly running out of venture capital buzzfeed and their investors are saying when are you going to turn make some money here guys um so there's an interesting issue around podcasts is you can build a huge audience and you can make money at an individual level the question of whether you can make money at a corporate big bottom line money i think is a slightly different one which not i know not what your comments about but when we say podcasts are in a healthy state it's interesting there's a couple of american companies in the last two weeks have said we're getting out well i mean fair enough though as you said ros you know they're all free yeah so it's kind of an unsustainable yeah. model surely they're all in the free. same way as free free journalism yeah unless you get some advertising you know if you've got a big enough audience and a small enough overhead and enough few enough people claiming their slice of the pie I think you can mm. sell a few adverts and make a bit of money, but can you sell 20, 30, 50, 100 million quids worth of adverts to yeah. sustain a business is probably... But that's, that's a... That's a whole other... <coughs> yeah, the main thing is you really like doing these slightly shambolic podcasts for the BBC and these beautifully ornate ones everywhere else. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> um, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to Roz. To David Horsepool and Dermot McCulloch and to Lorna Scott Fox. It's a history special of the TLS this week, so do track down a copy. It's full of lovely stuff. Next week, we have a theme of European culture. 
in these dark days of Brexit. So either now start singing Sibelius or angrily chant the national anthem according to preference. Until then, from the impeccably European Thea and from me, goodbye. Hello. Hello. You can make your own coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's over. The show's over for another day. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.